Well, this morning we continue our study of Romans, uh, so we're looking at Romans chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 uh, to 11 in Romans chapter 2, and I wanted to read that portion for you to give us a, a context of what we're studying as it connects to the previous uh, few verses that we've been studying over the last few weeks. Uh, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that thing which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice, for you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. And we'll stop there and begin to look to the other verses in the next time that we're together. Uh, but this morning we look at uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 11, and I've entitled this sermon, God's Impartiality. God's Impartiality. Uh, because that is the foundation upon which this context is established. And what you're going to find when you look at this passage uh, with me this morning is that just because unbelievers exchange the truth about God and Christ for the lie, it does not mean that they have exchanged judgment for leniency. So just because uh, they have exchanged, as I've said, the truth of God for a lie, it doesn't mean that they've exchanged judgment for leniency, and that means that they will not escape judgment. And essentially, that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2, uh, that believing lies and exchanging the truth about God and exchanging the truth from God for lies has not only consequences in this life, but it has consequences related to the day of wrath and of judgment. But you must also know something that is a top feature in this passage, in this particular group of verses that we're studying, and it kind of holds all of Romans together, and it's this fact. You must know that God is impartial in his judgments because of his standard of judgments, and his judgments are always according to the standard of truth, his truth. And so whenever God renders judgment and whenever God gives mercy, he does it according to his truth. And so verse 11, as we fast forward a little bit, verse 11 actually anchors the entire 11 verses uh, that we're looking at this morning. And it's simply put, for there is no partiality with God. It anchors the entire section. God is impartial. God is impartial. He is immutable. That is to say he does not change. And whenever there seems to be an, an apparent change, especially in the Old Testament, where God may relent some action or some judgment, you have to tie it to the covenant in which that takes place. 
Because if God relents in action, it doesn't mean he changed his mind. It doesn't mean that someone persuaded him otherwise outside of the divine counsel of his own sovereign will. What it means is there was a condition that needed to be met. And if that condition was met, then God himself rendered a judgment that was favorable for the one who met that condition. And you see that largely in the covenant uh, related to Moses, the Mosaic covenant that was given to the people of Israel. You see where God may relent in action because the people repent, but that's the nature of the covenant that he made. It doesn't mean he's changed his ways or he's changed his mind because he somehow can't come to a decision concerning a matter. You're speaking of one who has perfect counsel, perfect wisdom, and never relents in such a way so as uh, to think that he has made a wrong judgment in the first place. So he does not change. His nature doesn't change. His standards don't change. The things that he decrees, they don't change. And if they are to be met with conditions, the judgments for not meeting those conditions don't change. And the blessings that come with meeting those conditions don't change. And so God is immutable. God is immutable. And Paul began, as we look at the fact that God does not change, that God is impartial, Paul began with the unbelievers, uh, the unbelieving sinner's inability to bring a defensible position before God in the face of his judgments against man. Essentially, the unbeliever cannot bring a defensible position. They can't bring a defensible position before God in the face of his judgments against man. That's where Paul begins because he ties the entire previous section when he says, in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, therefore, therefore you have no excuse. And he's tying it back to verse 18 and all the way through. Everything that we've discussed so far, he's saying, therefore, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that thing which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. God's standards and his judgments are not shifting side to side in the winds of pragmatism like so many today. Because so many are making judgments about things and declarations about things and placing an affirming hand on men only to bid them farewell in a conference or an article. But God doesn't render those kind of judgments. What God does is he sets a decree, he sets a standard, that's his decree, that's his standard, and we ought not deviate from that. Because that thing is what he's established. And so you see that taking place here. That is judgments. His standards are timeless. They're eternal. And it holds every man to account. But one thing is certain. He's going to judge according to truth. He's going to judge according to truth. He's not going to say, well, there was a pandemic, so I did this. There was a... Uh, you know, the, 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 the crowd was doing this, so I did this. I felt like I needed to do this because this and this happened. His standards are always according to truth. I did what I did because God decreed it so. I, did, I took this particular action because God has established it in the heavens and upon the earth. So he judges according to truth and he is going to exercise mercy according to truth because we are in Romans and we're speaking of judgment. And that's 
And that's certainly a feature of it, but there's also mercy to be extended as well, and we'll see that. But even his mercy is according to truth. He extends mercy according to truth. Not because you believed you were good enough. Not because the age dictated that you ought to have taken such and such an action. An institution has dictated your action. It's because I did what I did according to truth, and therefore you will be extended mercy, or there will be judgment pronounced uh, pronounced upon you. And this will be done intimately. This will be done intimately. Paul is dealing with the people, but he's dealing with each one of those individuals. He's dealing with the parts as well as the whole, but he's certainly speaking to the parts, the parts being each individual person. It's intimate. And in this case, it's the judgment he's referring to, it has a collective element, but it's not collective. It's not follow the group and then somehow the judgments or the leniency will be granted upon that foundation. No. There's an intimacy in God's judgment. There's an intimacy in God's wrath, and we've seen that. So all this talk of having a personal relationship with God, everyone has a personal relationship with God. It's either one of wrath or one of mercy. So you're not calling people to have some generic personal relationship. You're calling people to have a saving relationship, a relationship founded on what Christ Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And so that's what Paul is dealing with. That's what he's dealing with. For Paul qualifies the kind of judgments that men make toward one another that condemns themselves. So the Bible does not teach this kind of refrain from judgment that never, ever makes absolute statements about sin. The Bible doesn't teach that man uh, should exercise a certain worldly and civic or civil tolerance toward ideologies and persons who hate Christ. The Bible teaches that one ought not to practice the sins upon which you're judging. That's what the Bible teaches. So what Paul is saying when he says, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that thing which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. This is not a call for worldly tolerance. It's not a call for worldly tolerance or the idol of graciousness that provides a haven for cowardice. This is not that. A graciousness that doesn't want to speak on the truth of God's word, but it wants to be known as gracious alone. This is not that. What he's saying is, is that the judgments of God ought to be the standard and you ought to be sure that you're not practicing the same sins upon which you're rendering judgments. Because that was an issue with the people. And you'll see this is moving toward uh, what, what is further said concerning the relationship that the Jews have with the law. But also uh, the indictment against man that no one is righteous uh, in the face and eyes of God apart from what Christ has, uh, what Christ has established as the terms of our salvation. So you're seeing that. It's barreling toward that. But in the meantime, Paul is saying that there's the kind of judgments that religious men are making against those who practice these flagrant violations and, uh, and high crimes against God, these sins against God, these transgressions. But at the same time, they're hiding their sins in religiosity. They're hiding their sins in a fiend allegiance to the law. And Paul will deal with them. He'll deal with them directly. But these are those who are judging sins. Listen to this. They're judging sins 
and at the same time practicing those very things that they are trying to judge. That's what they're doing. And this is called hypocrisy. It's called hypocrisy. You see it often. You see it in the politics of the world today. You see it in the public square. You see it in religion. You see it in the modern evangelical church. You see people using even the means of social media to do this very thing. Where they always have a warning about someone else's sin that they too are practicing. And this is the thing that Paul was against because long before those mediums were available, the Jews were doing it. They were doing it to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles rightly had the judgment and wrath of God upon them for the sins they were committing. But what we're barreling toward, if you study Romans, is that Paul is going to say, but the Jews are just as guilty. And they're guilty because they had the promises, the covenants. They had even before them in the very context and chronology that we're working with, they had the apostles. They had Christ himself come to them. And yet they were pointing their fingers at people as sinners and they themselves were harboring and protecting the same sins uh, in their own lives that they were judging in others. But you see in this age in which we live, you see man judging the very sins he is enslaved to. You see it. You have seen it. And you know it's there. And you know it's why Sunday after Sunday we're pressed to make distinctions. We have to make distinctions. What is the true church? What is a Christian? What is God's law? What is God's standard? And then how do we live those things out in such a way that we're not only making a good showing in the flesh, but that we're living according to the spirit? And this is what Paul is after. This is what Paul is after. But you see men accusing others of being thieves while they themselves steal. I've seen this. Men banging the table telling you that you're a thief and yet they're stealing. Men banging the table telling you that you're prideful and yet their whole ministry is rooted in pride and anger. Men having conferences on forgiveness while they bludgeon God's people and are merciless. Men taking pictures with other men while telling you how humble they are. You see this all throughout the modern evangelical church. And if no one's going to say it, we have to say it. We have to say it. We have to speak on these distinctions. Because Paul was a man who wasn't afraid to speak on the distinctions related to the Jews and related to the Gentiles. Both of whom were saying, we know God. And in fact, with the Jews, they were saying, if you want to follow God, you have to follow us. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. They lead you to sin. They've abandoned their posts. And so Paul was a man of distinction, and it's why he was hated as such. And we've studied that even in Acts. He's a man who made distinctions before people. He said, this is the God whom you ought to serve, and you are not serving this God. There's no room for debate on these issues. You're not serving the one who came uh, to save sinners. But you see ruthless men calling other men ruthless while they themselves devour them. You see this. And these are indicative of sins that they have not themselves abandoned. But these are the wrong kind of judgments that they're trying to make. You see it. You see men act with wicked partiality, all while judging the world for their lack of love. And you see it in several more places. I could go on and on and on about that, but you see it. 
your mind goes to the place where you're familiar with it. Men everywhere promising freedom from the things they themselves are still enslaved to. Promising freedom, telling you you'll be free. Just pay this amount. Just come to this location. Be at this Mecca. Be here. Be there. Sign up for this. Do that. Do that. Hear this speaker. And you'll be free. And yet all they're doing is wafting the winds and feeding their own pride. And fanning the flames of their own selfish desires. And Paul is saying it's no different. It's no different. But the problem is such persons, and we see it in our modern context, but we also see it in the context with which Paul wrote because these things are timeless. You see that God is impartial. And people do the things they do against his decrees and his laws and his commands because they think that God is somehow partial like them. They think God is like them in that sense, and he's not. He's impartial. But what Paul begins with is it is indefensible before God to try to escape judgment. Listen to this by calling out the sins you practice yourself. That's called performance and hypocrisy. It's indefensible. And that's what Paul says. You have no excuse. It's almost courtroom language and apologetic. You don't have a defense. In God's courtroom that you could make to render yourself not guilty just because you were able to identify the sins of your generation. But it's the sins that you practice. For Paul says such men are without excuse. They cannot bring an apologetic before God that would win him to their cause. That's the idea. If indeed they practice the sins, they are calling others to account. But listen to me. It is why the modern church man must speak generically when he is in the pulpit. It is why he, when he talks about sin, he's speaking very generically. When he talks about hypocrisy, pride, he always tries to relate it to some old-time Bible character and not relate it to the people in front of him. Because what he's afraid of is the self-indictment of the sins that he's hiding in his own life. And that's what you see. And Paul is after that. That's why he's saying God's impartial. God sees and he will render According to every man's deeds. Every man's deeds. There's a sinful man. Deeply sinful. Uh, that I once knew. Still know him. And he used to always say. He used to always try to quote out of context. Uh, I believe it's uh, the passage in the Old Testament. Be sure your sins will find you out. All the while this individual is in sin. And so what he would do is he would use that phrase for others, but he himself had a treasure chest of protected sins. Be sure your sins will find you out. And the problem with speaking that generically is when your sins find you out, will you repent? Or when your sins, uh, when the sins visit upon the people around you and the implications have to follow, will you call them to repent? And when pressed, he could not do it. But always said that verse, always said that verse in the hearing of people. But that's the kind of generic things that people do when they are filled with religiosity and not the true mercy of God and the salvation in their lives. It's very generic. They don't condemn things specifically because they don't believe that God is specific. And so that's the issue. But the issue is, is even when they do condemn things specifically. Paul says, are you practicing the same things? Are you doing the same things that you're condemning others for? 
Are you one who sins in this particular way while you're judging the sins of the world in front of you? And so it is the case. But God's judgment is impartial and it's according to truth. In fact, we see further along in Romans 2 that this mentality, this hypocrisy only heightens the judgment against the individual. It is not only the condemnation they bring on themselves by God's judgment against it, but it is the self-condemnation that brings them before him. They're already condemned because of the manner in which they judge and because of the way they sin as they judge. They know what the standard is. That's how this ties, even, uh, even with the conjunction, therefore, but grammatically and also contextually, that's how it all ties together. That they know what God's standard is. It's why they're calling out the sins. But they're ignoring the fact that the implications and the judgments are visited upon them. And they're not, uh, those things are not granted leniency because you simply call them out. You have to abandon them for yourself. But the kind of judgment Paul forbids here, because there is a kind of judgment that is forbidden, and there's a kind of judgment that God commands of us. And Jesus is very plain, even in Matthew chapter 7, that famous passage among people who want to protect their sins, and not so famous enough for the people who actually ought to be judging the righteous judgment. But it's to remove the things that cause a stumbling block for you to judge. That's what Jesus is talking about. That the text assumes you ought to judge. Paul assumes you ought to judge. Paul assumes that judgments have to be made according to God's standard. But it can't be I'm living in the very sins that I'm judging. It can't be that. And that's the kind of judgment that Paul forbids here by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. The divine author through the human author. And it's this. It's the kind of judgment that condemns others while practicing the same sins that are, uh, that are under the judgment by you. In verse 2, Paul makes a distinction between the unbelieving hypocrite and the believer. He says so. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. When he says we know. It is that the believer is intimately acquainted with God's standard of judgments according to the, to the truth. The believer is intimately acquainted with that standard. The believer knows it. So the believer is not the fiend, some false humility that says, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what God says in this issue. I'm not sure. We can agree to disagree. Let's develop a triage system. And everything that man tries to do to eliminate the standard of truth that is a divine unified corpus, a body. But the believer, the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer lives by that standard. The believer not only knows it, because the unbeliever knows it, the believer lives by it. They live by that very standard. That God is a God of truth. That Christ is truth personified. If you want to stare in the, in the face of truth, if you want to stare truth down, you stare in the face of Christ. But more so, also, the believer lives as though he or she knows the judgment will come upon the sinner for practicing sin without repentance. That's how believers live. Believers live as, as though they know that there's an unrighteous world that will be judged. And that there are those among them who need to be saved by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul, as he often did in the New Testament epistles, he framed his argument in a rhetorical question. Look at verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The way that the question is worded assumes, it assumes an answer that says you will not. It assumes that you will not escape the judgment of God for what he has said. Does man think that he will somehow escape the judgment of God for calling to account those who practice the sins in the last section of Romans 1 and more, while also practicing those same sins himself? That's essentially what Paul is saying. Can men who are gossips, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, etc., etc., can those individuals who practice those things properly guide you to righteous thinking and living on those issues? No. It's why you see no power in them when they try to. It's why they introduce manuals, mantras, hashtags, all kinds of things. Because they don't believe the word itself for themselves, so they set before you other things to call you to a standard for. And they let you hide in those things. And they simply manage those things. It's one big guilt management system. And Paul's against that. He's against that here. We therefore ask the question because Paul is after the fact that no one can stand before God with perfect righteousness. That's what he's after. The perfect righteousness that God rightly requires unless they are joined to the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his crossword. That is what Paul is after. One can't even come to make right judgments until they truly believe that Christ himself died on the cross for sinners, the elect of God, and they believe uh, that they are saved therein. But the question is, what are men hiding in with the hopes that they will escape judgment? That's the question, and that's what Paul deals with. What are they hiding in? Because he says, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, there's this trusting in your judgments that you're making. It's not trusting in the sins you're committing. It's trusting in the judgments that you're making while committing the sins. But what Paul is saying is, what Paul is saying is, is essentially sinful man who invokes a moral standard but does not live according to a righteous standard, that man is condemned. A moral standard. And I believe that the world at large, the modern church at large, let's be honest, is settling for simply a better and moral society. That's what they long for. That's what they want. And so they'll put all their investment behind someone who simply leads them to morality. But that's not what God is after. That's why God's kingdom is very much distinct from the kingdoms of this world. Because you have overtly wicked kingdoms, you have benign kingdoms, and then you have kingdoms who appear morally upright. But what God is after is a kingdom that is established on the righteousness of, of God himself. That's what God wants. That's what God desires. And that's what Paul is after. And here's the thing. How will a person who is practicing 
such sins and judging them at the same time going to escape God's judgment? The answer is, in and of himself, it is impossible for man to escape this because he is condemned by God and self-condemned. So he's condemned by God and self-condemned. And so that's why Romans 3 is written as it is in the very beginning of it. It's why it says no one is righteous. It's to bring uh, the individual to despair about himself in such a way that he must come to terms with. He must be joined to Christ and he must be born again. But what Paul, what Paul is saying is, is somehow, is God somehow capricious? Does he shift with the winds? Does he come with a mood? Is he angry one day and then the next day he's loving and then one day he's merciful and then whatever's legislated this day he'll follow and then if we vote against that he'll follow that. Uh, somehow we can move God's hand because we've done our part. Is God that way? No. Is he capricious? No. Is he intolerable? No. Is he unmerciful? No. In fact, in verse 4, Paul begins there as well. He deals with God's mercy. Look at verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul reminded the Romans that God had in his kindness desired for men to repent before him. He reminded them of that. He had exercised forbearance and patience toward the sinner to bring him to repentance. That's who God is. That's why the unbelieving sinner wakes up this morning with life, with breath in his lungs. It's forbearance. It's forbearance. However, understand the nature of forbearance. Forbearance is not unlimited. Forbearance is not unlimited, not as an action, not as a concept. Even when the world exercises uh, forbearance related to personal loans or private loans or anything in the scheme of finance, forbearance is not unlimited. It does have a time stamp upon which it is time to pay up. And patience, too, does not last forever toward the unbeliever. It doesn't last forever. Because the standard is not God's patience. That's not the standard to invoke when a sinner continues sinning against him. It's not, well, God is patient. God is loving. The standard is according to truth. And none of those things take away from who he is in the combination of all of his perfections working together at maximum capacity for all time. The standard is God's truth. His patience is meant to lead you there to his truth. So when someone says, well, as Paul writes against in Romans 6, I sin because grace will abound or I practice such an action because God's patient. But his patience is meant to lead you to his truth. And therein either lies his mercy or his judgments against you. But here's the issue. Verse 4 is not a time for people to answer him, unbelievers to answer him, and make a defense for themselves. They're already condemned. They're already condemned. Because of what Paul says in the previous verses, mankind has failed to acknowledge God and worship him. It goes back to that. And in all the sins committed in Romans 1, 18, verses 18 to 32, for all the reasons his wrath is coming upon the sinner, they too store up wrath and judgment for themselves since they stubbornly refuse to repent. They will not repent. They will not repent. 
in the face of his judgment. And they know his judgment is imminent, but they will not repent. It is why the world at large takes the phrase, only God can judge me, as if that's something uh, that will be lightly visited upon them. But again, the day is coming, and Paul relates to it. He relates to it in verse 5. The day is coming where patience and forbearance gives way to God's visible judgment and the accomplishment of his wrath. For Paul wrote, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That is a statement that shows you why it's so important to study the end times. To study eschatology. And if anyone withholds that from you or tells you it ought to be withheld, they are a false teacher. It has to be known, it has to be taught, because it provides even the sinner, the unbelieving sinner, with a clear picture of what will take place at the end. And God is very honest about what will take place at the end. But this is what they have to look forward to. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, it's not because God caused them to be in such a state. It's because of what they've done. And God responds to it in his judgment. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is what the sinner has to look forward to. The certain expectation and appearance of the righteous judgment of God. That's what's in front of them. No matter how they're getting along today by trying to use whatever means they can to avoid that reality, that's what awaits. That's why this Bible is open this morning. That's why we proclaim it as we do. Yes, we need to be exhorted by it, encouraged by it, strengthened by it, built up. But also people need to be warned by it. They need to be warned by it. We all do. But man will be judged according to the standard of his works. That's how man will be judged. It'll be by the standard of his works. It's kata with the accusative in the Greek, which denotes standard. Almost every case denotes standard. And these are not works that must be performed to appease God. He's not saying that. He's not saying somehow perform good enough works, societally speaking, in a philanthropic sense. And somehow God will be pleased. He's not saying that. These are rather works that demonstrate whether you knew him or works that demonstrate whether you have rejected him. These are works that he has given. That he recognizes because he's given them and decreed them for the believer to practice. And when the unbeliever practices the kind of societally good works that aren't filled with the righteousness that God requires, the eternal righteous demands that he has, it is why Jesus says what he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You're performing things, but I didn't give those to you to do. Those are born of your own self-righteousness. Those are born of your flesh. I never knew you. The works that are here are the works rooted in either the saving grace of God given by him, as what's said later by Paul in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, or works of the sinner who perform them in the flesh in accordance to perform their way to glory. That's what they want. They want to perform their way to glory, the unbelieving sinner. 
and yet are judged because they do not have the eternal resources to pay God back for the sins that have alienated unbelievers from him. They don't perform those kind of works because those kind of works are given by God for his believers to do. It says who will render to each person, to each person, this intimate thing of judgment to each person according to his deeds. But also in the realm of mercy. That it's not only judgment, but it's mercy. There's an intimacy in the mercy in eternal life and being known specifically by God himself. His deeds and the deeds are certainly tied to the motives. The deeds are t- the actions speak of the motives, the motivations, the deeds. It's not simply doing the act. It's why am I doing the act? Why am I doing what I'm doing? It's not this pragmatism of men. You can take two people who appear to be performing things that are related to God, and you look at the motives, and the motives are what uh, are, are what God is after. It's what God will either judge. Or he'll commend on the basis of his righteousness. It's the motives. Why am I here? Why am I proclaiming the word of God? Why are we studying the word of God? Why do we do what we do? It's the motives. It's the motives. Because your motives feed your actions. They feed your actions. But Romans chapter 2 verse 7 speaks of the sure vindication. You ought to be encouraged by this. It speaks of the sure vindication for those whose works and their perseverance, also known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It is here in Romans chapter 2, verse 7. Who persevere, listen to this, because God has willed it so. They persevere because God has willed it so. And because of the Spirit of God in them and Christ in them, proving that they have been born again. And what awaits them? It's not the shame and terror that awaits the sinner. For the believer, for those of you in here who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the believer, my brothers and sisters, it's eternal life. It's eternal life. Their works bring them honor, immortality, glory. As they seek not only life eternal, but ultimately the one who gives eternal life, Christ Jesus. That's who they're after. That's who they're after. They are known by him and they know him. That's Romans chapter 2 verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And then he makes a distinction as he paints a different picture in verse 8. It paints a picture of the horror and the shame that awaits those who pursue self-interest. Because that's what's in view. That's essentially what the words draw to. Selfishly ambitious. It's one who pursues their own self-interest. And they disobey the truth. As we have said related to Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and 32. Those are the sins that have led them to the point in this verse. When you look at all the sins that are committed in 18 uh, verses 18 to 32 of Romans chapter 1. They've led here. They've led to the glory and shame and the... uh, uh, I'm sorry, they led, they've led away from glory to the shame and the terror and the dishonor uh, that's due those who are going to receive wrath and indignation. So the day is coming. 
It's why the church can certainly be triumphant and think triumphantly because the day is coming when God will render according to the deeds of all men. It's coming. God, it's why vengeance is his, as Paul will later say. It's why God will do as he pleases. It's why you don't have to take up your own cause when you're slandered, when you're abused, when you're assaulted. Especially in the spiritually speaking of these things. It's because God will not only vindicate, but he will render very personally, very intimately, and perfectly according to men's deeds. But a different picture, as I mentioned, is painted from what we see in the perseverance of the saints. There are those who persevered in disobedience. They persevered in disobedience. And as we have said to that point, these are people who lived unto themselves, and therefore they received the penalty. They earned the wage. The wage of sin is death. So they earned it. Their works have earned them that. And the deception is they thought that their works would earn them glory, but their works earned them death. They have not angled their way into the kingdom as they thought, but rather they come face to face with God in his wrath and indignation. And listen to this. Paul goes back to where it all began. After he says, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, in verse 8, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And then he leaves no one out of it. But look where he begins. He begins right where he began, uh, right where he began in verse 16 of chapter uh, chapter 1. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. You see what it says in verse 16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and what? Also to the Greek. He's showing you that God is impartial in his holiness and he's impartial in his judgments. But he is specific. He is very purposeful. He does have for himself an elect people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But he is not partial. He is not partial. He's impartial. Because his standard is truth. And that standard is truth personified. There is no partiality with God specifically related to the Jew and the Greek. And in the context with which we're reading, he's not only talking about the Greco-Roman aspect of it. He's talking about Jews and everyone in civilization outside of Jewishness. Because that's essentially what the term has in view. It's the Greek. It's the Greek. It's those who are Gentiles, essentially. He's using it in somewhat of a cultural and yet uh, all-encompassing term. Synonymous with Gentiles. But who sin uh, but whose sin can be found charged to the account of Christ, those are the ones who will be saved. Sins are not charged to Christ and his righteousness charged to them. Sins placed on him, not in him. Those will be met with judgment if you are not found in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. Both who sin without repentance, both, both Jew and the Greek. This is huge as he's setting this up related to the law. Because the Jews didn't think 
They, they, they didn't think as Paul thought on this. They believed since they had the law, whether they obeyed it or not, that they had God's favor. And so many believe that. Since they have Bibles, they have God's favor. I don't have to obey it. I just have to have it. I just have to be around it. I have to be around people who talk about it. But that's not it. He says, essentially, that those who will not repent, they'll be met with the full force of eternal wrath and punishment from God. Both, yet, both whom God grants mercy and thus prove they belong to him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in Romans, Romans 8, 9, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. They will be given eternal life, righteousness, glory, and honor with Jesus Christ. Therein lies the hope. And listen to this. It's where we end. It's, it's essentially where we end. Because he makes that distinction in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when he says first, he's not triaging men. What he's doing is he's showing you a priority scale that God has. In the, in the sense of the chronology of the covenants. That he's dealing with the Jews first. And then he's dealing with the Gentiles. And you saw that as we walked through Acts together. He deals with the Jews and then he deals with the Gentiles. But he's saving his elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But listen to this. All of this because of what is said in Romans uh, chapter 2 verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. God is impartial. He will do as he said. As he's written. For the glory and honor of his name as he pleases. According to the counsel of his own will. And you know who he's going to do it to? He's going to do it to the Jew first. And then to the Greek. Let's pray.